You are listening to Locally Sourced Science. Your connection to the scientific discoveries happening in the Finger Lakes community. I'm Fred Balfour, and you're listening to Locally Sourced Science. It's early August, and maybe you've been enjoying sitting on your deck, having a cold glass of lemonade, and savoring the beautiful array of flowering plants in your garden. Did you know that plants can get along well, or feud with neighboring plants in a flower bed? This characteristic is called plant sociability. In our first interview, you'll hear more about the interesting relationships between plants from Brandon George. He is a recent graduate of the Master in Professional Studies program in Public Garden Leadership at the Cornell College of Agriculture and Life Sciences. George has worked as a horticulturist at a number of botanical gardens around the world and will share his observations about plant interactions in landscapes. Later in the show, you'll hear an interview of Cornell wildlife biologist, Dr. Kristen Schuler. She will discuss her work on the surveillance and prevention of chronic wasting disease, or CWD, in wild and captive deer in New York State. And we'll finish out the program with news about local science events happening in August. Now, here's Esther Rakuzin's interview with plant horticulturist, Brandon George. You're hearing the sounds of people talking as they leave the parking lot next to the Cornell Botanic Gardens bioswale. Other living things are buzzing and tweeting. Listen a little more closely. Do you hear the plants in the bioswale socializing? Well, plants may not audibly communicate with each other, but plants do have a way of growing as individuals and can have characteristics that influence the growth of neighboring plants. Some plants can be competitive and take over lots of space in a flower bed, while others grow slowly and in a small area. These dynamics are happening amongst the over 100 different species and cultivars in the bioswale. The Cornell Botanic Gardens recently hosted a tour of the bioswale presented by a horticulturist who is curious about how plants get along. Hello, my name is Brandon George, and I am a Cornell student. I am about to graduate with a MPS in public garden leadership in CALS. And my focus is on public gardening, and the focus is on education and interpretation within the professional garden community. Even as a kid, I've always loved gardening, so it took me a little while to discover this as a career path for me, but I'm really glad I did so. It feels like it's what I'm meant to be doing.
Brandon George is interested in the concept of plant sociability. This concept, initially proposed in the 20th century by German horticulturists Richard Hansen and Friedrich Stahl, uses a scale from 1 to 5 to describe how plants grow as individuals, for example, in small clusters or in large groups. Today, horticulturists are finding that the concept of plant sociability can inform how gardens can be designed to require less inputs like water and fertilizer and are more resilient in the face of climate change. For his master's study, George looked at the many different plants and cultivars in the bioswale in order to study what growth properties the plants have and how that influences their survival. This is the subject of his outdoor living research study. So when you think of stormwater and trying to manage stormwater, a lot of times you maybe hear about how stormwater runoff is polluting waterways and it's wasting valuable resources that they need to get processed through water treatment plants. So the idea of a bioswale is to essentially capture that rainfall and infiltrate it and let it percolate through the soil profile and let plants filter out contaminants and also slow it down so it can return to um, where it's meant to go. And in this case at the bioswale at Cornell, um, the bioswale there is to capture rainfall coming off the, the slope and slowly return it back into BB Lake. The bioswale was planted in 2010, and this is what it is like today. So there's 117 unique species and cultivars. So, and as far as I know, most of them, if not all of them, are native to this region. It's mostly perennials and grasses, but of course there's also trees and shrubs as well that are native. So the mix they chose to use was um, to benefit pollinators as well and wildlife. They only cut it in the spring, so it's pretty much a very dense thicket of plant material, so people can't go inside it. It's pretty protected. In order to study the plant sociability of the various plants in the bioswale, George is looking at something pretty basic. In the description and analysis of plant communities, it is a measure of the distribution patterns and organization of a species. That is a description that might be used by a plant horticulturist. So George provided me with an example using two plants that listeners might be familiar with. So if you're thinking about where Asclepias tuberosa, which is a native plant um, in North America, it's called butterfly wheat. We sometimes see it in gardens. And if you think about where that's found in nature, it's grown in kind of swaths through a meadow and it's describing how densely that is growing with other plants or if it's kind of growing alone in clusters such as um, verbascum. Verbascum is a great example of a plant you see in usually really small clusters whereas Asclepias tuberosa is something that grows in really large groupings. And You just heard George mention Asclepias or butterfly weed, a plant with bright orange flowers and verbascum, or common mullein. That's a plant with velvety leaves and a spike-like stem with pale yellow flowers at the top. You might have seen both of these flowers in meadows alongside highways in our region. Horticulturists observe that butterfly weed grows in large clumps, while common mullein grows in small clusters. These properties are kept in mind when horticulturists score the plant sociability of those species. One key thing that George points out 
is that if you can observe how a plant grows in nature, you can predict how it will grow in a designed landscape. There is actually a trend now to use this principle in planning and designing urban gardens. Some examples are the High Line Botanic Garden in New York City and the Lurie Garden in Chicago. In order to further characterize the plants in the bioswale, George used a scale called the Grime CSR model of primary plant strategies. This enabled him to categorize the plants into one of three categories. It's really important to understand how a plant naturally will survive and what it's what we'd call survival strategies are. So part of plant sociability is having an index of measuring tools. And there's three tools that I talk about in my research. And one is called uh, the Grimes CSR survival strategy, which stands for the C stands for competitors. The S stands for stress tolerators and the R stands for ruterol. So basically all plants fall somewhere within this spectrum plants that thrive in high resource environments, grow um, fairly quickly, and take advantage of high light, temperature, and water. And so those plants are typically very competitive. So when you plant those, um, sometimes they're a bit thuggish and they might take over areas that are very well watered and get a lot of sun. The other ones are stress tolerators. Those are plants found growing in areas that have either low water or um, perhaps the soil is very poor. So these plants are stress tolerators. In fact, they'll be able to survive long-term on poor soils. And so they're kind of in it for the long haul. They're slow to start, but they're gonna be there long-term. And then the third one is called ruterols, which are often plants that thrive in disturbance and are short-lived like annuals. So a lot of the plants we consider to be weeds are ruterols. They quickly come in and take over an area but they're short-lived, so stress tolerators and competitors outcompete them in, um, in a natural succession of a planting. George characterized all of the species in the bioswale garden according to the Grimes CSR model and compiled his results. I got an idea of what plants were competitors, stress tolerators, and ruterols. So the plants that were short-lived Oftentimes they've been outcompeted already because now the garden's 10 years old. A lot of the more um, competitive species have taken over. So of those 117 species, there's likely going to be less over time because some of the plants are going to outcompete each other. And eventually it's going to reach a stability climax where there's fewer species, but the ones that are there should hopefully be able to coexist together in a permanent state. And so what I found is that I can almost predict and tell you what species will be there in the long term and which ones are going to die in the next 10 years uh, based on where they fall within the plant sociability scale and ranking. The population of plants in the bioswale has changed over the 10 years of its existence, and George is certain that it will continue to evolve over the next 10 years. To a degree, I think the gardeners managing that space are taking something of a hands-off approach. I think they're letting nature take its course, and I think they're allowing some plants to outcompete each other. Now, a lot of times we don't want that. We want to be able to manage what the garden space was intended with this with the species that were planted there. But naturally, in anyone's garden, if you just let it go, there's always going to be things that get outcompeted. And so, in this case, I think 
there has been a reduction of species. I can't tell you which ones, every single one that has died out. A lot of echinacea have, but a lot of things like the Panicum virginiatum, the native switchgrass has done really well in there. And the Baptisia australis has done really well in there too. That's another really long lived perennial that has done well. So I think if you go back and that garden's allowed to evolve in another 10 years, it's going to look completely different again. And I think you'd be surprised at how much it changes with when left to its own devices. For another part of George's master's studies, he interviewed professional horticulturists about whether they would use assessments of plant growth properties when deciding what kinds of plants to use in a new design. Here is what he learned. The Grimes TSR triangle, the plant sociability method, levels one through five developed by Hansen and Stahl, and also um, Nigel Dunnett's long-term plant performance factors. I looked at all three of those systems and I kind of broke them down into a way that was explainable. And I interviewed professional people who work in professional gardens around the US and in Europe. And basically the, I presented this idea of, would you, knowing this information is out there, would you make use of it? Would you say it's reliable enough to make decisions on for planning purposes of perennial gardens? And the, the responses to the information presented was that in theory, it's a really good concept, but in reality, um, there's so many factors that go into a site-specific condition that can influence a plant's behavior that even if we have predictive tools of what a plant will do and behave like in its native environment, obviously a garden space is often so disturbed and so different from a plant's native environment that it's going to behave and perform in different ways. They would consider it more as a guide rather than a, a strong tool that they would base all their decisions on for planning and designing a garden. So I asked George what amateur gardeners should consider when they are getting ready to plant a perennial garden or want to spruce up an existing garden. The first thing I would say is just know your garden really well. Understand, is it, what kind of soil do you have? Does it drain really well? Is it sunny? Um, is it shady? Is it a loam type of structure in the soil? And I think the key, the key takeaway is the better you know your garden, the more likely you'll be able to choose plants that are appropriate for that space. And that when you do plant them, you'll be able to kind of predict what it's going to do in your garden. Maybe one day in the future, you'll run into Brandon George as you're assessing the plant sociability of some perennials in a garden far from Ithaca. At the moment, I'm looking for jobs in education and interpretation within a public garden or some kind of teaching role at a horticulture extension office. I really love teaching. I love education. And I'm just passionate about horticulture and constantly learning. So I hope I can channel that through people I can educate and share my knowledge with in the future. To learn more about the Cornell Botanic Gardens Bioswale and plant sociability, check out our photos and links at locallysourcedscience.org. You're listening to Locally Sourced Science. Do you want to share your science news? Send us a tweet at FLX Science Radio, or check out our podcast at locallysourcedscience.org. 
That's locally sourced science, all one word, dot O-R-G. At that site, you can subscribe to new episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and other podcast apps. Pennsylvania has had CWD in their captive and wild herds since 2012. So the surveillance that the state has been doing along that New York-Pennsylvania border has been ramped up already. And with this new detection very close to the New York border, it will be ratcheted up even more. That's the voice of wildlife biologist, Dr. Kristen Schuller of the Department of Population Medicine and Diagnostic Sciences at the Cornell College of Veterinary Medicine. She was talking about an outbreak of chronic wasting disease, also known as CWD, that was reported in late May of this year. The discovery of the lethal disease in captive deer herds in Pennsylvania near New York State's Chautauqua County caused wildlife officials in the state to remind hunters to observe the state's strict hunting regulations. Scholler is the head of the New York State Interagency Working Group on CWD, which is working to ensure that all measures are taken to avoid reintroduction of the disease to New York. I spoke to Scholler in June about CWD. I asked why officials in the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation, or DEC, and Agriculture and Markets quickly raised alarms when the Pennsylvania outbreak was discovered. To begin, there is no cure for CWD. Chronic wasting disease, or CWD, is a disease that we see in deer species, so things like white-tailed deer, mule deer, elk, and moose, that is universally fatal. And it was first discovered uh, in the 1960s in Colorado and has since spread and been detected in 26 different states. It's universally fatal, so there is no treatment or um, any sort of vaccination or genetic resistance that uh, you can do for the animals. The wasting disease is not caused by a type of bacteria or virus. It's actually caused by a misfolded protein called a prion. And because this protein that we normally have in our body adopts a different shape, it can't be broken down anymore by our body's natural systems called proteases. And because it can't be broken down, it starts forming Uh, these aggregates or plaques on the surface of the brain cell. And it essentially smothers that brain cell and that cell dies. And when enough of those cells die, uh, the animal's left with holes in its brain. And obviously um, having holes in your brain isn't really compatible with life. So after uh, about a year or two of being infected, that animal will die. Humans can contract mad cow disease and Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, which are in the same family of diseases as chronic wasting disease, 
All three are called transmissible spongiform encephalopathies. So transmissible because it can go from animal to animal or uh, person to person. Spongiform because your brain, uh, once you're infected with one of these at the end stages, actually ends up kind of having holes in it similar to a sponge and encephalopathy because it's a disease of the brain. Luckily, though, there is no evidence of CWD spreading to humans. There have been no cases of CWD described in humans. The connection of CWD as the same class of diseases as mad cow is what makes us concerned for human health. And for that reason, the CDC has recommended that nobody knowingly consume a CWD positive animal. Um, so there are various research projects ongoing, you know, trying to examine the possibility of CWD going into primates. But um, right now we don't have any evidence that it can infect people. In the meantime, CWD is of grave concern to wildlife biologists and people in the captive and wild deer hunting business because the disease is easily transmissible. So there are a, a couple different ways that the disease can be spread around. Uh, the first one is, you know, animals just being in contact with each other. So that's a direct transmission. Uh, and it can also be spread through indirect transmission, which is where you have an infected animal. You know, it's, it's alive, it's walking around on the landscape, but it's also shedding those prions, misfolded proteins in its saliva, its feces, and its urine. And that then contaminates the environment and another deer could pick up those prions from that contaminated environment. New York State has the distinction of being the only state in the country that, after the discovery of a case in 2005, was able to eliminate CWD from wild and captive herds. It was uh, detected in two captive herds and subsequently detected in two wild deer. And there was a lot of um, regulation put in place of movement of carcasses out of that zone, no rehabilitation of uh, wild animals in that zone, of wild deer in that zone. And after intensive sampling for five years, that zone was decommissioned. And so it's something that other states, you know, haven't been able to replicate. So whether New York was very lucky in being able to detect the disease early and, you know, be very uh, aggressive in their approach to, to removing it. Um, we can't say, or, uh, you know, whether it was the actions just themselves, but it's, it's very important that once this disease becomes established, it's, it's very uh, nearly impossible to eliminate. So that sort of, um, preemptive actions to not get it in the first place, and then aggressive response once you have detected it is critical. It turns out that CWD can spread readily amongst deer in a captive herd because they are in close proximity to each other. Also, deer from a captive herd in one state are sometimes purchased and moved to herds in other states. This makes the tracing of the spread of CWD more complicated. 
the commercial enterprise involved selling and buying animals. So there's a lot of movement of these animals, even with um, the one in Pennsylvania, they are having to do an epidemiological investigation of where all the animals from that herd came and went. And so when they do what are called traces, they found that you know somewhere in the neighborhood of 13 to 15 different locations are epidemiologically linked to that herd. And then they have to get and uh, identify those individual animals, get in touch with the owners, figure out how they can get those animals tested because the test can only be conducted um, for on dead animals. We don't have an approved uh, live test that is used very often. In some situations, they can do live testing in captives, but um, yeah, it's, it's a big lift just because there's so much movement of these animals. New York State prohibits the import of deer from out of state to prevent this from occurring. Um, we're very fortunate in New York that the Department of Agriculture and Markets took the steps in 2013 to ban the import of live captive cervids into the state uh, following the detection of CWD in Pennsylvania. And so by not allowing animals to come in from other states that may have CWD, then uh, we're in a, a better position for those herds to, to have a lessened risk factor. Another way that CWD can spread is if hunters move the carcass of an animal that they don't know is infected away from the area where it was killed. We know that people uh, move animals around a lot. And so the two major mechanisms that we see are hunters that might go somewhere else to hunt and they have uh, the deer carcass that they're bringing back. And within that carcass, there are prions that are in higher concentrations in certain places like the brain and spinal cord. Or uh, there's also a captive cervid industry and there's a lot of movement of animals between facilities. So the, the spread happens a lot faster when it's being assisted by humans. New York State encourages hunters to bring deer to venison processors and taxidermists that are on a list maintained by the state DEC because the agency regularly tests carcass samples from these businesses. Also, hunters can have their deer carcass tested by the Animal Health Diagnostic Center at Cornell. Dr. Schuller notes that the incidence of CWD is increasing in areas with high deer densities. So she stresses that hunters should remain vigilant. For hunters, it's important for them to really understand the regulations and try to support the state wildlife agency efforts to control this disease. And just because they can't necessarily see it with their own eyes doesn't mean that it's not a problem. To learn more about CWD, visit cwhl.vet.cornell.edu slash hunter-cwd-testing.
Here is news about upcoming science events in the locally sourced science listening area. On Friday, August 6th at 10 a.m., the Paleontological Research Institution, or PRI, presents the James Potorti Interpretive Gorge Walks. The first of two walks will take place at Buttermilk Falls State Park. The walk begins at the Buttermilk Falls Swimming Area. There is a parking fee at the state park. The second walk is on Friday, August 13th at 10 a.m. at Watkins Glen State Park. The walk begins at the lower entrance at the end of the parking lot near the trail. There is a parking fee at the state park. For more information about the James Patorti walks, as well as other PRI events, visit priweb.org. Monday, August 9th, from 1 p.m. to 3 p.m., children and their families are invited to a drop-in science, technology, engineering, and math STEM program with Steve Williams of High Key Science. This program will meet in the grassy yard along the creek walk behind the Tompkins County Public Library and Urban Outfitters. Tents will be available and this program will proceed even on rainy days, except in the instance of extreme weather warnings. For more information, visit tcpl.org events. You can find links to all of these events at locallysourcedscience.org. I'm Fred Balfour, and you've been listening to Locally Sourced Science. Esther Rakuzin produced today's interviews of plant horticulturist Brandon George and wildlife biologist Kristen Schuler. Our theme music is from Joe Lewis, and other music is by Blue Dot Sessions. You can find all of our archive shows and subscribe to our podcast at locallysourcedscience.org. Science out!